Uh, dear fathers, we come before you today. We truly want to thank you for your powerful word and we pray that we will understand uh, the true meaning of it so that our faith may be encouraged in every way and that we may know you as an awesome God. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, recently I was reading this book uh, called Burnout in uh, Church Leaders and one of the exercises in it was really helpful and interesting because they asked you to use a pencil and to draw out or sketch out uh, like a, a line representing your your life, your Christian life, and the high points and the low points of your relationship with God. And uh, it was quite helpful because as I was going through it and sketching this uh, line about my life and my relationship with God, I realized that uh, we have high points and uh, we have low points. And I'm sure that for yourself, if you spent a moment doing it, if you look back on your own life, if you trace a line you know, representing the high points of your relationship with God, and the low points, you'd also see that, uh, you know, there'll be times of great encouragement, uh, great, uh, uh, I guess, uh, feelings where you're really close to God, and there'll be times where you feel really low and far, far away from God. And I realized that uh, when you actually look at your life in this way, it's interesting because we want to have a life where we are constantly uh, at a high point with God. Whereas I think we want to avoid the times where we have low points of God, where we feel far away from God. Now it's incredibly sad because unfortunately, I'm sure as you know, you have had friends or even yourself where the low points are so low that uh, people stop believing in God, become so distant that they never actually recover to actually have a faith in God anymore. So what is the secret in terms of sustaining your Christian life so that your relationship with God is always at a high point? That you always feel the presence of God in every way and to avoid the low points? Well, I think that as we look at uh, Daniel chapter 2 today, it gives us an idea of how it is that we continue to sustain our relationship with God through good times and bad times. Now, as we've been looking at the book of Daniel, I think the background is super important here. Because I feel that as we look at the point of Daniel's life at this point, chapter 1 and 2, there would be every reason for Daniel and his three friends to feel very low about God. That they would be in danger of losing their faith and their relationship with God and losing their Christian identity. So the time is uh, 605 BC. So if you look up here on this map, I've got a few slides today which might be helpful for you. So it's 605 BC and Daniel... And his friends, uh, this is the Great Babylonian Empire, which is really huge, right? I mean, it's like the whole of, of uh, Iran and Assyria and Iraq today, right? And uh, Jerusalem had been conquered, had been defeated, and Daniel had been taken with his friends to Babylon, the capital. And at this point, uh, it would have been very, very demoralizing for Daniel and his friends because their nation had been conquered, uh, all the capital had been sacked, but more importantly, as we saw last week, the things from the temple had been taken as prized possessions to be put in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. And in those days, uh, the seizing of the things in the temple was not that, you know, we want to start this great museum so that, you know, we can, it's like this, uh, you know, Asian civilization museum in Babylon or something, right? But rather, it was to show that my God is greater than your God. Because I defeated you, it's not just that I defeated you, but my gods defeated your gods, and your gods were unable to defend you. And a way of showing that defeat of your gods was to seize the things 
in your temple and to put it into my temple as a sign of my trophy. So it will be a very difficult time for Daniel and his three friends to hold on to their faith because it would seemingly seem as if God, the God of Israel, had been defeated by the gods of the Babylonians. But I think it is more than just that defeat and the seizing of the things of the temple, which would be very demoralizing. It would also be that as they were brought into Babylon itself, they would be struck with awe and wonder. Because truly, Babylon of that day would be like the New York, the Paris and the Londons all put together. It was the largest and the greatest city of that day. Apparently, it was surrounded by a, a wall, like uh, similar to the Great Wall of China sort of thing. But the wall was so wide, that, uh, according to uh, things that we've understood from archaeology, that four chariots could ride side by side on top of that wall. So that's a huge wall, isn't it? And also it contained many wonders, including one of the wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So again, the great temptation would be that as they entered into this great city to do their scholarship and to be bonded to the Babylonian uh, government, they would sort of feel that maybe we are just small town people coming to the big city. And it's time that we left our small time, town god behind and, and, and followed all these great gods. But more than that, the city of Babylon was also filled with idolatrous worship. So if you look at the map, you can see that it was filled with temples, right? There are there all these temples, the, I don't know how to pronounce that, the Iyar temple, the Adar temple, the Ishtar temple. It was just a, it was a city full of temples. And not only was the, the city full of temples, but the walls and the, and the roads were filled with, with idolatrous uh, images. Uh, so here, the next slide, I got this from the Bible dictionary, is a boundary stone. And the boundary stone sort of is, is a way of showing this is my territory. And the boundary stone has, as you see, the zodiac on it. And many people feel that the modern zodiac that we have today, that you read about in the newspaper, came from the Babylonian civilization. And the streets themselves were paved with names of their gods, Marduk, uh, you know, other names. So here again, faith and identity and faithfulness and relationship with God would be under threat for Daniel and his friends. Now last week in Daniel chapter 1, we saw that Daniel and his friends were getting some encouragement because they drew a line in the sand. They said, okay, we will not eat. From the king's table, we will not eat the rich food. We will only drink water and eat vegetables. And God had given Daniel favor in the sight of the chief eunuch by allowing himself not to be defiled by this food. And God had also allowed Daniel and his friends to be smarter and uh, achieve more than the, the, all the people who had come from the other nations. But if we had ended in Daniel chapter 1, we would say that God wasn't really a very big and powerful God at all. All he had done was he had allowed Daniel and his friends to make a stand in secret. And also he had made them uh, do well in their studies and their career. But is that really a mark of a really big God? Well, I guess for some of us, doing well in our studies might mean a lot. But I don't think it really is a sign where God was really, really showing that he was really greater than the gods of Babylon. So today, as we look at Mark, uh, sorry, not Mark, Daniel chapter 2, it goes on with uh, what's happening, and it's, the, it's really the next year, right, 604 BC. So in the second year of his reign, 
Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the chatters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to him, said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, if you look here, it seems as if uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, right? It says there, but it wasn't just many, many different dreams. It seemed to be a dream which kept repeating itself over and over again. And it was an exceedingly troubling dream. It was troubled him so much that he called all his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers to interpret the dream for him. And as we know, in the ancient world, uh, they had a lot of dream manuals. So, you know, all these magicians, enchanters and sorcerers were waiting there thinking, okay, tell us your dream so that we can, we can use our dream manuals to interpret what you've dreamt. But the problem was that King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't following the program. He wasn't telling them the dream so they couldn't interpret the dream. Right? And repeatedly, uh, the astrologers and magicians asked him for the dream, but, but Nebuchadnezzar refused to tell it to them. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar not want to tell them his dream? Obviously, they had these dream manuals, they could interpret it. I think the answer comes in verse 9b, isn't it? Because in verse 9, there seems to be a reason to the madness of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. See, for Nebuchadnezzar, it seemed as if this dream was so urgently disturbing that he needed full assurance of its interpretation. And what he sought to find out about the interpretation was, if you can tell me the dream, then you will assure me of the interpretation. It will guarantee for me the interpretation. If you can reveal it to me, then I know that what you tell me about the dream is true. And I think that part of it is because Nebuchadnezzar knew that the dream had to do with the future. So what he wanted to know is, well, if you can tell me the past, which is my dream, then I will be able to know that you can tell me the future. The ability to see into my past will assure me that you can tell me the future of my dream. Now, obviously, the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers had never come across this situation before, right? They were looking at their dream manual and they couldn't find out the answer. There was a you know, frequently asked question at the back, you know, what happens if the person tell, doesn't tell me the dream? There was no answer there. So they told the king, very in no uncertain terms that in verse 10, right, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. I mean, basically you're asking us to do the impossible. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. You see, for the many, many, I guess, magicians and enchanters and astrologers of all those pagan gods, there was no way to understand what and reveal what Nebuchadnezzar was asking for. 
Because first of all, no person can know what another person dreams in his sleep. And secondly, if the gods are able to access it, then for these magicians, enchanters and astrologers, these gods would not or could not speak to them and tell them and reveal what this dream was about. So if you think of all those temples in Babylon, all those gods that were worshipped, they were far, far away from the people who were ministering for them on their behalf. So King Nebuchadnezzar said to them, well, no dream, no head, right? You don't want to tell me what the dream is, then obviously you are no use to me and you are all destined to die. And even poor Daniel and his friends in their second year of their three-year scholarship get pulled out of class to be executed. But then Daniel responds very differently to how the other astrologers, magicians and enchanters responded to Nebuchadnezzar. See, look carefully to what happens in verse 14 to 23. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for some time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised God, the God of heaven, and said, Praise be to the God, to the name of the God forever and ever. Wisdom and power his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, you notice the relationship that uh, Daniel has with God and his perception of God is very different to the relationship and perception of the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers. See, first of all, Daniel's God is not distant or unreachable or out of touch and far away, but rather God is able to hear his people. And God, if he is able, is willing to communicate with his people what is unknowable. And that's why all four of them plead to God in prayer. And as they plead to him in prayer, God reveals the mystery to them. Now this word mystery is not like, you know, Sherlock Holmes or, you know, CSI, where, you know, if you, if you use your intellect, you can figure out something. Rather, this mystery is something which is unsolvable. By man, It is hidden, it says there is deep, it is in darkness, but God sheds light on it so that they are able to see what is unknowable. And therefore, God reveals to them the nature of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But God is more than just a revealer of dreams. Because it says here, 
when Daniel praises God that he is both wise and powerful. He is wise because the dream is just not a revelation of uh, uh, of uh, what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, but rather he is wise because he sees the whole the whole spectrum of history. God is wise because he sees what happens in the past and therefore is able to know what is going to happen in the future. But not only that, God is also a powerful God because he not just sees history and the future, he makes history and he makes the future. See, remember once again what Nebuchadnezzar had said earlier on. Uh, I think in the slides up here, right? Is it up here? Uh, Leonard, the one about the demand of of um, of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, if you tell me the dream, then I will know that the interpretation is real. So in a very real way, what we see here is because God shows in a concrete way that he knows the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, therefore it assures us that what he says about the future is true. But more than that, can we truly believe that God is totally wise and totally powerful? Because as we look at this passage, it seems as if God is saying a lot more about himself than just being a revealer of dreams. He is the controller of time and history, the present and the future. He sees and knows everything because he controls everything. Now here as we look at this passage, if we look at verse 36 to 37, we see that God actually says very strongly that in this dream, it is to show his power because he is the one who controls everything. This was the dream, Daniel says, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So what is actually being said here is a very brave thing by Daniel because he's saying that as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar is, it is a delegated authority. God put Nebuchadnezzar there and God will take the power of Nebuchadnezzar and the future kingdoms away. That is how powerful God really is. Now, the question that we should be asking, I'm sure that many people ask is, can we believe that God is so wise and so powerful? Now, I think we can believe it because the dream is a very detailed dream. It is not a dream where, you know, it's like very confused and interpret, you know, like, it's like watching a, a movie, you know, like, uh, you know, like you can discuss it, you know, for hours afterwards and it still doesn't make any sense, right? But this dream is very specific. And as we've seen, the dream has a statue, okay? And the statue is, is this looking like this? Okay, I got this off the net, okay? So there's a head of gold and then a, a chest and arms of silver and then a thigh of bronze and then iron for the legs and the feet. And Nebuchadnezzar is told by Daniel very specifically that these represent, next slide, four kingdoms. Okay, there were four kingdoms and 
at the end of the four kingdoms, there would come an enduring, an everlasting, an eternal kingdom. Now, this dream begins in a very specific moment. It begins with, oh, uh, no, 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 not so fast, not so fast. Okay, the other one. Okay, it begins, uh, the previous one. Oh, I think I got all wrong. Okay, next one, next one. It begins with, it begins with Nebuchadnezzar as the head, okay, the head of gold, which is again the delegated authority of uh, God given to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how then do we understand the three other kingdoms before this great enduring kingdom comes? Well, if we want to do the exercises to show you that, you know, uh, it's not something that we make up, or, you know, we, we sort of try to squeeze in all the different bits so it fits into what God says. If you look at the historical timeline, okay, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is here, the Babylonian Empire. So what's the next kingdom? It's uh, the Medio, Medo-Persian Empire, right? So obviously the next kingdom should be, uh, next slide, the Medo-Persian okay, Empire must be this part, okay? So what's the third kingdom? Next slide. Okay, you can't see very well, but um, this is the Greek period. You see Alexander the Great? Okay, so he started the Greek civilization. Alright, so the next slide. So the, the, the kingdom of number three must be the, the Greek kingdom. Oh, I'm not going too fast for you. Okay, the next slide. Okay, so what happens after the Greek period? Well, obviously, um, it is the Roman period, right? So after the period of the Greeks is the Romans. Okay, so next slide. Okay, the next one. So, what happens next? Because obviously, according to the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, after the Roman period, or within that Roman civilization and kingdom, then God would come and carve out of stone, not made of human hands, but with heavenly hands, a great kingdom which will destroy and surpass all these kingdoms. So therefore, we must be looking in the Roman Kingdom for something that happens which signifies the coming of this great, great kingdom, which is greater than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, than the Medo-Persian kingdom, than the Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. And what must that be? Well, if you look up here, well, it was the coming of Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus comes in the period of the Roman civilization. Now, if we understand what uh, this dream is significant, uh, how this dream is significant, then we actually see that Jesus brings in a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, not a man-made kingdom. And this kingdom will endure and surpass while all the other kingdoms will turn to straw and be blown away. Now, that's why, if you look at the next slide, okay, it actually says that the, the, the enduring eternal kingdom that comes will be greater than all these other kingdoms. Okay, next slide. Next one. Oh, okay. Don't, no, no, no need some more slides. Okay, next one. Okay. So when John the Baptist came, if you remember, as he prepared the way for Jesus, he said, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And if you remember when we did our responsive reading on Psalm chapter 2, it also speaks of how the sun will come 
and how all the kings of the earth need to kiss the sun and bow before him, lest they be destroyed by him. So I think as we look at this dream, if we truly reflect on it, it is a phenomenal thing that this dream is, is actually saying, isn't it? One of the problems, I think, for many scholars as they look at this dream is to understand how somebody in the past, uh, in Daniel's time, which was 604 BC, right, 600 years before the coming of Jesus, could actually predict very accurately the kingdoms that were to come and the coming of Jesus. Now, I think one of the problems uh, for secular scholars is they don't believe in prophecy. They don't believe that God has the power to speak to mankind, and they don't believe that God has the power to be able to see the future and to make the future. So what they try to do is, they try to make the, the, the dating of the book of Daniel as late as possible. Right? So we know that the Old Testament canon was all put together by about 200 years before Jesus came. So what they say is, okay, Daniel must be one of the last, last books written in the Old Testament. And therefore, you know, he was actually not prophesying forward, but he was actually looking backwards in time. But there is a fundamental problem with that, right? Because if you, if you go back to the timeline, uh, sorry, then I'll get you back to the timeline. Right? If you go back to the timeline, uh, next one, uh, the Greek one. Ah, okay, the, the Greek one, right? So basically, um, they would say that uh, Daniel was written around 200 something BC. But the problem is that even if Daniel was written 200 BC, around then, uh, how would he know that the Roman period would be the last kingdom? And how would he know that the Son of God, Jesus, would come after that? So I think if you follow the implications of what is being said here, uh, the only way that this dream actually exists and actually ties in of history is because God is who he says he is that he is a God of wisdom and that he is a God of power and that he controls history to such a degree that he makes kings and kingdoms rise and makes them fall and he brings Jesus at the right time, at the right place to bring in his heavenly kingdom. Now, as we reflect on all these things, it's kind of hard to grasp in our mind. Uh, I find it hard to grasp in my mind. I don't know about you, but if you think about it, just think. 600 years before the coming of Jesus, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, which he then revealed to Daniel, which spoke with great accuracy of all the kingdoms to come, and then spoke of his son Jesus coming into the world, dying on the cross, being risen again, and bringing a kingdom which will never end. Now, that only happens because what God says is really true, and he is a wise and powerful God. You see, it's just like what Daniel says in Daniel chapter three, verse sorry, Daniel chapter two, verse forty-five, isn't it? The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. See, I began the the sermon by asking the question: How do we keep our relationship with God at a high point at all times? How do we avoid the low points in our relationship with God? 
Well, really, the high points and low points of our relationship with God have nothing to do with God, but everything to do with ourselves. Because God doesn't change. He is not less wise when we are far away from Him. He is not less powerful when we don't feel so close to Him. When we feel distant away from God, it doesn't mean that He didn't control history and bring Jesus into the world to be the King and the ruler and Christ. But what changes is ourselves. See, for Daniel and his friends, in every way they should have been, they should have given up hope in God. They had been defeated. Their city had been destroyed. The things of the temple had been taken away. All the things of worship had been removed. They had gone to the greatest city of the world. They had been surrounded by pagans and pagan gods who were superior to their own country and their own countrymen. They should have been mesmerized and seduced by the Babylonian Babylon around them. They should have been awestruck by the sophistication and the impressiveness and the progressiveness of the thinking around them. But yet, they were able to keep their faith, their identity, and their relationship with God. And the only reason was that they recognized that God was a wise God. And God was a powerful God. And God was going to build an enduring kingdom which would never end. So I wonder about ourselves today. How is your relationship with God? Would you say your relationship with God is at a high point? That you are really feeling the presence of God, the closeness of God? Do you, do you know His power, His love, His grace, His might, His wisdom, His care, His grace over you? Or do you feel that your relationship with God is at a low point? That you feel that God is far, far away from you? and that you are not really interested in the things of God. Well, it's got nothing to do with God, because God always remains the same. He's still as wise and as powerful as 600 years ago, or no, actually 2,600 years ago, at the time of Daniel. But it's got everything to do with us. Perhaps you're doing the exact opposite of Daniel and his friends. Maybe you are seduced and mesmerized by the Babylon of today around you. Maybe you're seduced by the sophistication and the oppressiveness and the progressiveness of the thinking around you. Maybe you're blinded by the values and the things of the people around you. But let us see that the dream and the power of God is real. That He is a God who controls all things, history, powers, nations, authorities, the things around us, maybe even your own boss. And God will bring about His enduring kingdom. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a little seed and it grows into a great tree and it shelters all the animals around it and it's invisible in many ways to many people. But when Jesus comes, that kingdom will be realized and fulfilled in every way. But the question is, as we see the certainty of the future before us. Will you be part of that kingdom? Will you be part of that enduring kingdom? Or will you only be part of that kingdom which is destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, 
Uh, truly, we want to ask you uh, to really think deeply about Daniel chapter 2. Uh, to be filled with wonder. There's such a dream and interpretation. It makes sense of 600 years of history. How is that possible, God? Except that truly that you are a wise God. That you are a powerful God. That the, the flow of history is dictated by you. You raise up kings and kingdoms and you bring them down. You allow powers and authorities and rulers to come to power. But yet, sovereign Lord God, you bring them down in your own time. Dear Father, even the coming of Jesus, the events of his life, his death and resurrection were all under your control. Dear Father, you tell us so powerfully in this passage of how there will be an eternal and enduring kingdom, one that will never end. Dear Father, help us to see how all fits together, how Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen, he has ascended, and that when he comes again, he will bring to fulfillment this everlasting kingdom. Dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here. We pray that you may watch over our souls, that you may always make us fully aware of your power and your wisdom and to not be seduced by the things around us, by the temptations of the things that we see, by the impressiveness of the powers around us, but to see that they are all passing away, that they are all under your control. And the thing that really matters, the only reality that matters, is your enduring and eternal kingdom. Dear Father, help us to have strong faith in Jesus and to never waver because the only reality that matters is your wisdom, your power, and the kingdom that lasts forever. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.